How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9. Make sure you're filled with the Spirit and ready to study the Word this evening. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this privilege and opportunity to gather together this evening to study your word. We thank you for all that you have given us in Jesus Christ, all of our positional blessings that you have already given us, all of the assets we need to grow, to advance, to mature as believers. The only issue is our volition and our decision to study your word, to remain in fellowship, and to apply your word under the uh, teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that you would uh, challenge us with the things that we study, help us to uh, understand these things, see their importance for us in uh, decision-making in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Genesis 12. Genesis 12. Now, we've gone through the first three verses. first three verses start off with God commanding uh, Abram to get out of his country. And in that opening imperatival phrase, he uses the uh, imperatival form of the verb halak. And the verb halak means to go. It's the basic word for walking, proceeding, moving somewhere. Looks like this in the uh, Hebrew, H-A-L-A-K. And when we get to our passage... And verse uh, 4, we see this, this, uh, this evening, so Abram departed. It's the same word. It's, it's the, you get the command to depart in verse 1, and then you get the response in verse 4. So the, these first uh, four verses actually form a, uh, a unit that God told Abraham to go, and so Abraham went as the Lord had spoken to him and lot with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he had departed from Haran. So this is our starting point. Now what we saw in the first three verses was a summation of the Abrahamic covenant. A summation of the Abrahamic covenant. And we have seen that it includes three provisions. Land, Seed and blessing. Each of these are going to be expanded on over the course of Abraham's life. This isn't the covenant itself. It is the original mandate of God to Abram. The covenant itself is cut in Genesis chapter 15, laid out in 15, cut in 17. And land, seed, and blessing are the three provisions, and the most important of which that we'll see in the section we're dealing with this evening is the land. And each section, as we go through, has to do with one, at least one of these three provisions. 
as you go from chapter 12 through chapter 25, each episode in Abram's life deals with one of these, maybe uh, two, and then there is a test. And I have identified 12 tests that God takes Abraham through in this, in the course of his life. Twelve major tests that are outlined here. Some he passes, some he partially passes, and some he just completely blows. So that should make us feel very comfortable because we're pretty much the same way. And each of these tests has something to do with one or two of these three provisions for the Abrahamic covenant. And so you see this dynamic of the divine promise and the response of the believer in terms of the faith rest drill. Now, it's not just limited to the faith rest drill. It may involve different elements, as we've seen already, that it involves the one aspect that we saw from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, is that Abram had his eyes on a city that was whose builder uh, was God. And so this means that he has an ad, that ad, has reached spiritual adolescence, and he's developed a personal sense of eternal destiny. He has to demonstrate not only grace orientation towards Lot, but when he knows that God is going to destroy Sodom, where Lot and his family lives, he has to learn to exercise uh, impersonal love for all mankind, and that in- shows him being a blessing, and he does that in some different areas. And when we get to the final test, In Genesis chapter 22, he is completely focused on the Lord. And so there we have, uh, rather than occupation with Christ, which we have in the New Testament, he is fully occupied with the Lord. And so this shows that he parlays his faith rest drill into the spiritual problem-solving devices, the spiritual skills that take him to spiritual maturity. So this gives us a lot of application as we go through the life of Abraham to see how the believer grows. So let's get into this passage. Genesis 12.4 reads, So Abram departed as Yahweh had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now, Lot was not supposed to go with him. The mandate was to get away from your family and from your father's house, and so he's taking his nephew with him from Haran. He's already left Ur of the Chaldees, gone up to Haran, and he went with his father, so that was only partial obedience. He had to stay there until uh, the Lord took his father home, and then he left there, but it's still incomplete obedience. But he's trusting God, but not fully. He takes Lot with him, and we're told, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. He's got a 100 years left to go. Just think about it. What do you think, Dave? God said you got a 100 years left to go. Well, you just had your 89th, 88th birthday. 88th birthday. you got a 100 years to go. You ready? Yeah, well, that's the way it was with Abram. He's got a 100 years left to go, and he is, he's hit spiritual adolescence at this stage because there is a sense of, of a personal sense of his eternal destiny. Verse 5 we read, Then Abram took Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's son and their possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. Now just a note on this. Abram is one of the wealthiest men in the ancient world. He not only has material possessions in terms of flocks and herds and cattle and sheep, 
but he also has servants and he has slaves. Slavery was uh, standard operating procedure in the ancient world, and there were different modes of slavery. Now, I'm not going to take the time to go through the different modes of slavery in the ancient world. We tend to always, as an American, you tend to always think in a knee-jerk reaction in terms of a certain kind of, of a racial uh, slavery, a uh, chattel slavery. And uh, so you, when you think of slavery, you always think of that kind of slavery. Well, that's only one kind of slavery. There's probably three or four different kinds of slavery that were manifest in the ancient world. And the Mosaic Law regulates how slavery was to take place when the Mosaic Law was given under Moses in uh, about 1400 B.C. See, God doesn't regulate sin. God prohibits sin. He doesn't tell you how you can commit adultery under certain conditions. He doesn't tell you how you can commit murder under certain conditions. He says, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not commit murder. But he says certain conditions for slavery. And the conditions where slavery was, number one, it wasn't permanent. They had six years at the most, and at the sabbatical year, they were to be let go. So if, and first of all, secondly, to be a slave in Israel under the Mosaic Law, you had to enter into it voluntarily. It was very similar to what we called indentured servitude in the early days of the American colonies. It was not permanent. It was not contrary to the individual's volition, and if they wanted to enter into permanent lifelong servitude, it was their volition, and they were to pierce their ear with an awl as a sign that they had entered into this uh, slavery uh, of their own volition. See, that's contrary to the kind of slavery you think about, but don't limit the term slavery to one kind of slavery. Because God recognizes that there were certain conditions when it was good for a person to put themselves under that kind of extreme security to work themselves out of debt. And they could also earn money uh, and earn their freedom. So it's, it was a very different kind of, of slavery, but it, it was called slavery, and it did have a, a way out. And that was very different from what most of us think of. As slavery, So God regulated it in such a way that it provided a certain measure of security for those that needed it and that it would protect the divine institutions of marriage and volition and family. So Abram had slaves, and this is what this is talking about here, the persons which they had acquired in Haran. So he's got a large entourage now. Uh, later on, in a couple of chapters, when he goes after the uh, five kings of the e- uh, four kings of the east, who invade in the Keterleomer uh, coalition, we're going to see that he has over 300 servants that he puts together in a small army to go defeat this larger army, this larger coalition. So obviously, he has a, he is very very wealthy. He has amassed a large number of servants, slaves, workers however you want to uh, uh, designate them. And then we're told that they departed to go to the land of Canaan, and so they came to the land of Canaan. This is the destination. Finally, after some time has passed, five or ten years, he arrives at his destination. Like many of us, it takes a little time to arrive at the next stage in spiritual growth and our spiritual life. And then we're told in verse 6 and following down through verse 9, 
how Abram entered the land. Now, I will bet you anything that when you read this, if you read it, you went through this and you read verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem. I'm not going to embarrass anybody and say how many read it or how many turned to the map at the back of their Bible to see where Shechem was. As far as the terebinth tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were then in the land. Verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. We skip on past that to verse 8. And he moved from there to the mount east of Bethel. Where's Bethel in relation to Shechem? Did you look at the map? To the mount east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. What in the world is going on here? Let me back up a few slides so we get back to our first verse. Verse 6, Abram passes through the land of Shechem. There's several things that ought to occur to us, three questions we ought to ask. First of all, why does God the Holy Spirit furnish us with these details? Why does God the Holy Spirit think it's important for us to know about these places? I mean, Abram entered into the land from the north. Shechem wasn't the only village, the only settlement, the only town where he stopped. He built an altar there. Then he goes on to Bethel. He builds an altar there. Why are these places singled out and other places not singled out? The journey begins, uh, the first major stop is at Shechem. The second major stop is at Bethel. And then he goes on to the Negev, which is the south, into the south of the land. So why is it that the Holy... First question is, why does the Holy Spirit think it's important for us to understand these geographic movements? Second, why is there this apparent division of the land into three regions? There's an apparent division of the land into three regions. There's the area in the north down to Shechem. There's the area in the center, we'll see in a minute, from Shechem to Bethel. And then there's the area that's in the south, south of Bethel down to Beersheba. Then the third question we ought to ask is, why in the world is Abram building altars in the land? What's going on here? Why is he building an altar? Why is he going to these places and building altars? Why are they given to us in this order? So there's some uh, important things for us to address here. Well, the first place he goes is Shechem. Shechem figures into the Old Testament in a number of different ways, and this is the first place that it is mentioned in the Old Testament. And what we see here is that when Abram first came to Shechem, God appeared to him. This is the first clear articulation of the land provision in the Abrahamic covenant. The Lord appeared to Abram at Shechem and said to your descendants, and here we have the Hebrew word Zerah, Z-R-A, little, uh, actually Z-E-R-A, Zerah. And it's that word seed. It's the same word that's used back in where? Genesis 3.15. He will bruise your head, but you, uh, he will, you will bruise his, he will, you will bruise his, the seed of the woman will bruise your head talking to the serpent. Uh, but you will bruise his heel. It's the seed of the woman. So you got to trace that seed concept. And it starts there. So this is a narrowing of that seed promise. And what God literally says is to your seed, 
I will give this land, not some other land. You know, that's one of the things that was, uh, uh, it's been attempted every now and then you'll hear people say this, well, you know, let's just get the Jews out of that land. Let's give them a piece of real estate in South America or somewhere in Asia or Africa. But, you know, that land belongs to the Palestinians. Number one, no, it doesn't. There weren't any Palestinians until the late 60s. In fact, if you look at the way language was used in the early 20th century, Palestinian was a synonym for, is, for a Jew. So, and, and uh, the Palestinians have no historic right there. They were, they're basically the, the descendants of migrant labor that the Turks brought in in the 18th and 19th century. They don't trace themselves back to the Philistines. It is a misnomer to think that the word Palestine is an, ed- is etymologically derived from Philistine. It isn't. It is derived from a Greek word meaning wrestler. Remember Jacob, when he came out of the womb, you had twins, uh, uh, the sons of, um, of Rebekah. And the, the twins are Jacob and Esau. Esau came out first, but, es- but J- Esau came out first, but Jacob's right behind him grabbing onto that heel. And he was called a heel grabber because he was deceptive. And that was the, uh, that was the idiom. And so, so Jacob, uh, uh, Jacob then becomes the uh, progenitor of uh, the of the line of the Jews through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, uh, God is going to give the land to those uh, descendants and not to any others. Oh, uh, Jake, the point I was making was Jacob is a wrestler. He's a heel grabber, and that's that term wrestler. They were fighting in the womb, Esau and Jacob, and so the Greeks called the 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 land uh the land of uh of uh palao which was a greek word meaning wrestler and so it was a pun it was a play on words it was to designate the land of the jews it doesn't have anything to do with the philistines so this land not any other land and every now and then you hear this absurd idea that we oh, let's settle the jews somewhere else no god gave them that piece of real estate which as we go through genesis we'll see that it's uh, defined even more. So God says to Abram, to your descendants, I will give this land. And what's Abram's response? There he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, what's the purpose of an altar? purpose of the altar was to perform a sacrifice, but it is to worship God. And worship, what we'll see here, and here's the principle, worship is a response to what God does for us in grace. Worship is a response to what God does for us in grace. That's why worship includes includes singing, it includes prayer, it includes studying God's Word. But don't fall prey to the fact that uh, modern uh, evangelicals have distorted the word worship to refer to singing. That's just a singing is a minor part of worship. Uh, don't refer to the song leader as a worship leader. The worship leader is the pastor. Song leader is the song leader. And don't confuse the two. Uh, but see, this is how Satan destroys things as he changes vocabulary. So God promises the land to Abram's descendants, and he worships him at that site. So let's do a little study of Trace Shechem down through history. Abram builds his first altar to the Lord here at Shechem, right in the heart of, let me see if I've got a map here, Right in the heart of Canaan. 
See, in the, in, on the map, Can- the area of Canaan would extend even further up to the north. And this area here on the right, you see the river valley. This is the Jordan River heading from north to south. This is the Sea of Galilee right here. See, there's the Sea of Galilee. And then you have the Jordan River going down. And then down here you have the Dead Sea. And here... Right here in the heart of the land of Canaan, surrounded by all the pagans, is Shechem. And so what does Abram do? He goes to Shechem, and archaeology has discovered that Shechem was an ancient Canaanite worship area. He goes right to the heart of the Canaan religion and, as it were, plants his flag for God there. Right in the heart of pagan idolatry. And this is a response to the fact that God has given this land to him. So he is starting to claim the land. He's, it's, it's like um, if you were to go out and, and uh, for example, in the, uh, in the Old West, 100 years ago, and you were operating under the homestead law, when you came to a piece of property you were going to homestead, what was the first thing you did? You went out and you staked the boundaries. Well, see, that's in essence what what. Uh, Abram is doing here. He's going to these three regions, the north, the central part, and the south, and he is going to establish an altar where he calls upon the name of, the, of God, and he's basically staking his claim to that land, even though he never owns it during his lifetime. He is staking his claim. That's what's happening here. Notice there is this this religious or worshipful or spiritual dimension to it. It's not just the physical property. So you, you can't separate the two. Now, the same pattern is followed. You see the yellow arrow here comes down from the north. This same pattern is followed two generations later with his grandson Jacob. Turn over to Genesis chapter 33. A few chapters over Genesis 33. This is the next major mention of Shechem in Genesis and in the Old Testament. Jacob has left. He went back to Haran where he uh, had to work for seven years and he got Leah instead of Rachel. And then he had to work seven years for Rachel and he gets his wives and begins his family. And now he's on his way back. On his way out, God appeared to him at a place called Bethel, which is what's going to come up next. And he appears to him at Bethel, and, and he re, uh, confirms the Abrahamic covenant with him. Then he goes and works uh, for 14 years under Laban, and now he's coming home. And on his way home, he meets with Esau earlier in the chapter. And then we read in verse 18, Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, which he came from Padan Aram. And Padam Aram was really located uh, more in this area over here in Syria. So instead of following Abram's route of coming in from the north, he comes in from the northeast, uh, crosses the Jordan, and he comes to the same place where Abram had first come. You think that happened by chance? No. He came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city, and he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces 
of money. And then he what? He erected an altar there and called it El Elohe Israel, God the God of Israel. So he is, again, what's he doing? He is restating the claim of his grandfather Abraham to that territory. And he purchases land for the price of a hundred pieces of money. Now, there's a couple of interesting things that we ought to point out about this piece of land. It was probably a large piece of land. Part of it was later became the, uh, the tomb for Joseph. They also dug a well here. Jacob dug a very famous well here that was still operational in the New Testament time. In fact, we have discovered it today. And it is, was in the New Testament time, this area was known as the town of Sychar. And when Jesus had a little conversation with the woman at the well, it was right here at this spot. Do you think that was coincidental? So you have to trace these things through the Scripture because there's these things don't happen by chance. God is not a God who does things in a random manner. So the Amorites sell property to Jacob. Jacob purchases property. This recognizes the right of the private ownership of property. It's part of the first divine institution, individual responsibility. This is something that we have to fight desperately for today because we have too many government officials who try to destroy individual responsibility. See, see the, the bleeding hearts on the liberal left, all the Democrats, are so afraid somebody's going to actually uh, hurt themselves or die or become sick as a result of their own bad decisions. So they think it's the government's responsibility to come in and provide Social Security and provide health plans, provide prescription drug plans, and all of these safety nets. Do you think for one minute that one colonist in America in 1776 had in his mind the idea that it was the government's job to rescue him if things didn't work out out there on the frontier? No. That's not what made America great. What made America great was the emphasis on individual responsibility and accountability, even if that meant you lost everything and you died in the streets. And see, liberal pantyways come along, and they don't want people to meet the consequences for their actions. And so they opt for socialism. And one of the worst is these two senators from the People's Republic of Massachusetts. And... Socialism will destroy a nation. It destroys the first divine institution. And every bill that these guys support that have to do with taxes, they want to raise your taxes all the time, that destroys personal incentive, it destroys personal responsibility, and what they want to raise the taxes to do is to take away your responsibility. You're not responsible for, your, you're not responsible for the security of your future. The government is. Let's all worship the government. And this is about as anti-biblical as it can possibly be. And see what we, what we see in this little episode is the right to buy land and to own land. Now what's interesting is the next time that Shechem is mentioned. And it's a word play. The, the writer of scriptures love word plays. The Holy Spirit loves puns. Turn over to Genesis 48-22. And his and the Holy Spirit's puns always have some sort of theological thrust to them. This takes place 
just prior to Jacob's death, now he's an old man, Joseph has been born, he's been sold into slavery, he's in Egypt, the boys have gone down there, discovered him, and you know, everything that went on with Joseph, and then they, the brothers went back, got Jacob, brought him to Egypt, and now Jacob's on his deathbed. And when Jacob is on his deathbed in, in Genesis 48:22, he says to Joseph, and notice there's a name change here, there's a shift. When, when Jacob's referred to as Jacob, he's usually carnal. When he's referred to as Israel, then, then that's an application of his role as a prince of God and the application of the principle of blessing. And he's going to bless Joseph. So in verse 21 we say, Then Israel, that is Jacob's other name, Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Notice the importance of the land. 22, Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers. In other words, he gave Joseph, the younger, a double portion, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Well, wait a minute. Didn't you just say in, in Genesis 30, 33, 19 that he bought the land? Yes, he bought the land, but the Shechemites tried to take it away from him, and he had to fight to defend it and to protect it. Now, we don't know when this occurred, because Genesis 48:22 is the only mention of this fight. We just know he says, I had to fight, I had to protect it with my sword and my bow, which establishes the principle that we have a right to fight and to the point of killing anyone who wants to take our personal property or personal possessions, whether this is an individual criminal who is stealing it or whether it has to do with a foreign aggressor that is seeking to attack a nation. And it is passages like this that lays the basis in history for the doctrine of just war. You can talk to any of these people who are talking about the war in Iraq and whether it's just or unjust, and before they get past that sentence, as soon as they start complaining about it, you just ask them if they have read Augustine and Aquinas on the doctrine of just war. And if they haven't, then they should just shut up about it and go back and do some homework. You know, this is a solid Christian position and has been, I mean, you can trace it back to this time period, that there is a basis in Scripture not only for uh, war that is defensive, but also a preemptive strike. And this is exactly the kind of thing that took place in Iraq and the kind of place that liberal senators from the kind of thing that liberal senators from Massachusetts don't want to do because ultimately they don't understand freedom and they don't understand the principle of what is involved in preserving freedom and protecting freedom. And see, Jacob understood it. You have to fight for it. You have to be willing to die for it because freedom that you won't fight and die for isn't worth having. So this property stays in the family And when the Israelites under Joshua go back into the land, they take Joseph's bones with them, and Joseph is buried at Shechem. So Shechem has a very important significance all the way through the Scripture, and then we get down to uh, the the, uh, conquest. And the conquest under under Joshua, in uh, Joshua 8, 30. Turn over, let's turn over there to Joshua. So you can't just let these things kind of slide past you and say, oh, we just went to Shechem and move on. 
what Abram's movement to Shechem first sets a pattern that is followed throughout the rest of the Scripture. He goes to Shechem, Bethel, and then down south. Jacob returns to the land, goes where Shechem, and then he will go to Bethel, and then he goes south. And then when when jo- uh, Joshua bring, comes, brings the army in to conquer the land, and under the command of a holy, righteous, loving God, I always have to throw loving in there when you talk about holy war, because under the uh, operation of God's divine love, he said that every Canaanite, man, woman, and child, uh, even the babies, had to be killed. So if you can't factor that into your concept of love, then you need to go back and rethink your concept of love. Because the same God who loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us is the God who loved us so much that he had the Canaanites annihilated. Now go home and think about that for a while. So in, And the pattern in Joshua is the same pattern. He goes in and he attacks Jericho, where Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. And then he heads to Ai, which is right across the valley from Bethel. And then he goes to Shechem. And then what happens is he secures the center point there around Bethel and Ai. Then he goes north and he secures a strong point at Shechem. Then he goes south and secures the Negev. And then they do the mopping up operation. But let's just focus on this one event in Joshua 8. Joshua 8, after the rebellion at, um, of the, uh, of the, of uh, Achan and the conquest of Ai, then Joshua does the same thing that Abram and Jacob did. Verse 30. Now Joshua built an altar to Yahweh, God of Israel, in Mount Ebal. See, there's Mount Ebal and there's Mount Gerizim that's right there at, at, at Shechem. And the village of Sychar in John 4, where the woman at the well was, was right between them. As Moses, he built the uh, altar, as Moses, the servant of Yahweh, had commanded the children of Israel, as written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. That means no work. See, it's all grace. God does the work. He made the rocks. And they offered on it burnt offerings to Yahweh and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Why is he doing that? Go back to Sunday morning in Revelation. This is that testimony that I'm talking about. This isn't where you have the people's copy. This is related to God. It's an altar to God. So this is where you have this this uh, this record of what man is expected to do. And after he does all of this, he gathers all the people in front of him, and they stood on either side of the ark before the priests and Levites who bore the ark of the Lord, the stranger as well as he was born among them. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim on the one hand, and half in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses servant of the Lord had commanded before that they should bless the people of, e- uh, of uh, Israel. And as they stood there, Mount Ebal... And Mount, between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, they had a covenant renewal ceremony which took on a symbolic meaning. Mount Gerizim is forested, and that was a picture of the blessing and all of the blessings in the Mosaic Law. Mount, Mount Gerizim, uh, uh, Mount Ebal, Gerizim was forested, Mount Ebal is barren, and that's true to this very day. And Mount Ebal pictured the curses of the law. And so you got this big visual that, that uh, Joshua has there. He says, if you're blessed, you're going to be like Gerizim. If you disobey the law, you're going to be like like Mount uh, Ebal. 
And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. Now, I just love a passage like this. See, you can really preach a passage like this. Because what picture, what, what's the picture in your mind? Joshua is standing there with the scroll of all of the law. That's Exodus 20 to Exodus 40, all of Leviticus, and the book of Deuteronomy. How long do you think it would take to read all of that out loud? And all the Jews are standing there. Not, they're not sitting in uncomfortable wooden old Baptist pews. They're not sitting in comfortable theater seats. Uh, they're not sitting back in their leather recliner watching it on television. They're standing there and concentrating on the whole thing and, and listening. And this is a very important and formal ceremony. And uh, the conclusion, verse 35, there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joseph, uh, or which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were among them. So there's a covenant renewal ceremony at Shechem, and that's not the end of it. Turn over to Joshua 24. And then at the end of the conquest, just before Joshua dies, he calls the people back to Shechem. And here he is going to rehearse all of God's gracious blessings, everything that God has done. And again, there is a covenant renewal ceremony at Shechem. This is a centerpiece. This is a staking the claim. This is like when Columbus uh, landed at San Salvador and he took the flag of the king of Spain and he landed on the beach and he planted it in the ground and he claimed it for the king of Spain. That's what they're doing. They are claiming the land for God, that this is the land that God has given them. They're not presumptuous. They're not arrogant. They understand what God has given them. And in Joshua 24, 15, a verse you should have, uh, you should have these verses uh, highlighted in your Bible. If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so he stakes a claim and gives a challenge to the Jews to keep their loyalty with the Lord and not to be distracted by idolatry. Shechem doesn't disappear from history. Shechem's the location in the Judges where uh, Gideon's son Abimelech is uh, made or crowned king of Israel by the citizens of Shechem. This was an act of rebellion against God. It also plays a role in uh, the division of the northern kingdom from the southern kingdom when Rehoboam, uh, is, who's the successor to Solomon, goes to Shechem to be crowned king over Israel. And Shechem later becomes the uh, capital of the northern kingdom. But Shechem becomes the focal point of the Lord's gospel witness to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Uh, and it, that's important because he is talking about his role there right in the shadow of this false temple that's been built on Mount Gerizim by, this, by the Samaritans. Okay, this is the importance of Shechem. So that's the first place where where Abram goes is Shechem. And then he heads from there south to Bethel. 
Verse 8, he moved there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. So he's in the valley that's between the cities of Bethel and Ai. And there he builds an altar to the Lord and calls on the name of the Lord. So what is he doing here? Now he has moved. Notice he has moved from Shechem here in the north down right to this little area. You can see on the map that Bethel is to the west and Ai to the east, those two white dots. It's Bethel and Ai. And here he builds an altar. This is in the central highlands of Israel. So he is claiming that area for God. And then he is going to move from there, and it doesn't say here, later he will go to Beersheba, or when he comes back he goes to Beersheba and Hebron, but he goes to the Negev. And it's while he's down here in the Negev region around Beersheba that he that this famine occurs, which is the focal point of the last part of the chapter. And rather than staying in the land God promised him, he decides that, hey, things are looking pretty good down in Egypt, so he heads down to Egypt. And then he gets into some divine discipline down there and heads home to Beersheba, and he builds another altar in this area. So what he's doing is he's building these altars, and he's claiming the territory... For God. Now, why does he do that? He does it. We have to go back to understand that God has promised him the land. This is the land that God has given to him, and he's not just uh, out there arrogantly uh, stealing the land. Now, when we look at this, we have to take time, step back, and, and understand a couple of things. Before we do that, let's look at Bethel. He moves down to Bethel. Bethel was a city that was originally named Luz. It's located, let me go back to the map for you, it's located 11 miles, here it is here, it's located 11 miles from Jerusalem, so Jerusalem would be uh, right about in this area here. Right in this area, right, let me make that real small, right about here. Bethel is 11 miles north of Jerusalem right on the tribal border between Benjamin and Ephraim. Ephraim was in the north. Benjamin allied himself with Judah in the south. So, But this area went to the north due to some things that happened during the book of Judges. Now, Jacob, on his way out of the land to go find his wife, renamed the site Bethel after having a dream from God there. This is in Genesis 28, Verses 10 through 22. This is where he dreamed that there was a ladder coming down from heaven with angels ascending and descending on the ladder. This is a picture of blessing on him, and it was a place where God reconfirmed the Abrahamic covenant with him. So that took place at Bethel. He called the name of the place Bethel, and he erected a pillar at Bethel to mark the spot of his vision. And later in Genesis 35, he built an altar at Bethel. So just as Abraham built an altar at Bethel, Jacob will come back and build an altar, uh, an altar there. So this is a sign of their uh, trusting God for the promise that he has made. Now, don't get confused here. Don't be like these, these biblically illiterate charismatics who come along and want to claim everything for Jesus. You know, this name it and claim it movement. See, God hasn't spoken to them. Well, some of them think he has, but that's just because they're off their medication. You see, God doesn't speak in this generation. God has specifically told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that this land is theirs. 
And that, and they're trusting him for that, so they're not going out and just saying, oh, I think God wants me to have this land, so I'm going to claim it for Jesus. See, that's what the charismatics are doing in their biblical illiteracy. What Jacob and Abraham and Isaac are doing are recognizing the divine promise, and they're trusting it in terms of the faith rest drill. They believe God, and they are acting upon that promise. And so they are claiming the land on the basis of what is already given them. This is what's important to understand. In the Abrahamic covenant, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God gives them the land. It is theirs positionally, but it's not theirs experientially. And that lays a basis for really understanding a dynamic on the spiritual life throughout all of Genesis and, in fact, throughout much of the Old Testament. is what is going on between Israel corporately and the believer individually. Let me say that again. What's going on between the uh, Israel corporately and the believer individually? What happens to Israel as a nation is a picture often of our type, a shadow of what happens in the individual life of believers. Let me lay the groundwork here. What we start off with in, at the very beginning of Genesis is God's unconditional promise of the Abrahamic covenant. So we're going to start off and write up here the Abrahamic covenant. Let me do it this way. We're going to have a, on the left column, we will label this the Abrahamic covenant. And in the right column, we'll put a couple of squiggly lines there, meaning equivalent to, representing typology. The Abrahamic covenant is illustrative of our position in Christ. That's your, that's your typological comparison. Why? The Abrahamic covenant is, first of all, unconditional. It was something that was freely given to Abram, not on the basis of anything Abram did, but on the basis of God's grace. Second characteristic of the Abrahamic covenant is it can't be lost. No matter how disobedient Israel became, they could never lose the Abrahamic covenant. They were secure in that position. The Abrahamic covenant was given to them. So the Abrahamic covenant can't be lost. And the Abrahamic covenant became the basis or the potential for blessing. Then on the other hand, what we have, and this is all related to, to like the believer's position in Christ. At the instant of salvation... We're placed in Christ. It's unconditional. It's given to every single believer. It's not based on who you are, but what Christ did on the cross. It can't be lost. You're always going to be in Christ. And it's the basis for your blessing. Not what you do, but what Christ did. You're, because at the, also at the instant of your salvation, you're given the perfect righteousness of Christ. Now, the land promise, come along, we have the land promise, and the land itself which is part of the Abrahamic covenant, the land itself is roughly equivalent to the believer's experiential blessing or his temporal fellowship. Now, why do I say that? Well, God tells the Jews that the land is theirs, but... In the blessing and cursing paragraphs of the Mosaic Covenant, he says, if you're obedient, you'll stay in the land. 
If you're disobedient, I'm kicking you out of the land. Is it still yours? Yes. Will you ultimately get it? Yes. But if you're disobedient, you're not going to be in the land. If you're obedient, you're in the land. So the land is a picture of blessing. So their, 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 their experience of the land is conditional. Just like your experience of fellowship is conditional. It depends upon your volition. If you're obedient, you're in fellowship. If you're disobedient, you're out of fellowship. Uh, the land could be lost. They were kicked out twice. They were kicked out in 586 B.C., well, before that in 722 B.C., and then in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom went out, and then again in 70 A.D. They lost the land. The land is a picture of their ongoing fellowship. It's the place of blessing. And that's the third thing. The land becomes a place of blessing. When they're in the land, it's a picture of blessing. When they're out of the land, it's a picture of divine discipline. So you see, the Abrahamic covenant becomes uh, equivalent for us to what we have in Christ. This is what the Jew had in Abraham. But it's not activated until, uh, except through obedience. And when he's obedient, he's in the place of blessing. He's in the land. When he's disobedient, he's out of the land. So this is, relates to the nation as a whole, not to the individual. I'm not talking about individual salvation, but I'm talking about the fact that the nation as a whole is related to the Abrahamic covenant in an unconditional way. It applies to every Jew, whether they're saved or not. But that's not talking about salvation. It's talking about in relationship to the land. Uh, the land, the activation of those blessings, the land promise, is theirs when they are obedient. So that's that's conditional. And this is how it relates to the believer. Watch what happens in Abraham. When he's in the land, he's in the place of blessing. Next week when he goes down to Egypt, he's not trusting God to supply his needs in the famine. He's saying, well, there's a great grocery store down here in Egypt, and I'm headed south, and the Lord's going to take care of me there. He's using human viewpoint techniques to solve the problem. The right thing, getting food, done in a wrong way, going down to Egypt. So, and when he gets down there, the fact that he's carnal, see, once you make a decision to opt for human viewpoint, carnality or sin will quickly follow. As soon as he gets down there, he says, he looks over at his wife, he says, man, you are, you're 60 years old, but you're still a good-looking broad, and the Pharaoh's going to want you. Let's just tell him you're my sister. Let's not tell him the whole truth that you're my wife also. Let's just focus on the sister part of this relationship. And so... Uh, he gets down there and he gets in all kinds of trouble because he's lying. See, he's trying to protect himself through lying. This is what happens to us. We get into stress, we get into problems, we get into difficulties, and we decide we know the correct way to solve the problem, and the next thing we do, we start lying about it. We start uh, shading the truth, fudging the truth a little bit just to make it work, and we're trying to solve our own problems, and that's what happens with Abraham. He's out of the land. He's out of the place of blessing, but when he gets back to the land, we don't read anything more about a famine. He goes back to uh, the land. We don't hear about him getting hungry. He goes back to the land, and God takes care of him. So he he fails this, this second test. The first test was to go to the land. The second test is going to be to, to stay in the land in the midst of testing and, and struggle and, le, and use the faith rest drill for God to provide for you. And later on, we'll see another episode very similar. He goes to the Philistines. What does he do? He lies about Sarah again. She's my, she's my sister. Same problem occurs. Uh, you know, and, and it shows that sin patterns follow. You know, 
Isaac does the same thing, goes to Abimelech, the Philistine lies. Well, she's my sister. Uh, when she's his cousin, she wasn't his half-sister, so he's telling a little greater lie. See, generational sins increase. And uh, and then it gets on down to Jacob, and, and but that gets into another issue. So what we see is that there is this movement. Now, back to the initial question, why in these four or five verses does the Holy Spirit give us this detail? Because it sets the pattern. It sets the pattern for what happens uh, later with Jacob, later with Joshua, and in the conquest of the land, and that is that Abraham is trusting God. This is his, he is finally passing that first test. God said, uh, go to the land that I will show you, and he finally gets there. God promises him the land, and he goes to the key points in the land, right in the middle of pagan Canaanite worship. They have all these altars to Baal and the Asherah all around, and right in the middle of it, he builds an altar to God, and he is in effect staking a claim as he goes through the land that God has given this land to, to, to the Jews, to me and to my descendants, and I am staking a claim. Jacob reestablishes that claim, and then eventually when Joshua invades, he goes to the same places, builds altars there, and at that point the potential of the land is finally given to, uh, to Israel. So this sets us up for the next section, which is in Gen- verses 10 down through the end of the chapter, which is where Abram tries to solve his problems through uh, the latest uh, human, viewpoint, human viewpoint, psychoanalysis, self-help, uh, self-improvement techniques. And we'll get to that next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. One announcement before I close in prayer. Two weeks from tonight, it should be November the 3rd. We will not have Bible class on Wednesday, November the 3rd. If you will, we'll postpone it to Thursday, November the 4th. Uh, in the course of our transition out of here down to Houston, I have to get a vehicle down to Houston, and it's either postpone a Wednesday night or postpone a Sunday morning. It's easier to postpone Wednesday night. So we'll have class that week on Thursday the 4th of November, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by these things, to see the principles of Scripture come alive, and to see their importance for our own spiritual life. Pray that you challenge us with the things we study. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.